Some of you don't need to hear this sermon. Some of you have already preached this sermon with your lives, and I'm talking about those of you who volunteer each month at Micah Ministry to serve food to the homeless, or who bake cakes for Micah Ministry, or who tutor at Hartman Elementary just a few blocks from here every week. It would really be presumptuous of me to preach a sermon about service to people like Bonnie Hensley, who just got back from a week of rebuilding homes in Puerto Rico, or even to those of you who spent all of last Saturday serving at Grace of Work here at the church or in the broader community. So if you're one of those people I just named, you can just take like a little nap right now. You've got about 11 minutes. Just tune me out and think about some other happy thoughts. And then there are those of you who actually serve in the wider community in ways that I never even see, like those of you who worked on a mayoral campaign recently in Kansas City or helped with one of the city council races, or perhaps you're one of those people who recently took a casserole to your neighbor who came home from the hospital with her newborn, or you're the PTA treasurer at your school. Maybe you're that person who's always up early to shovel the walk of the elderly neighbor before she has the opportunity to step outside on a winter morning and slip on the ice going to get the newspaper. You already know firsthand, all of you really, that God calls us to serve one another. Now, some of you may be in the category that I am in, in that you really do believe in serving, but you frankly just don't have the time. There aren't enough hours in the day to get your work done, to take care of your family, to get to the dry cleaner, to keep up with the laundry and the yard work and eat healthily and exercise. When in your schedule would you possibly have time to serve dinner to the homeless or visit the prisoner? Maybe one day you will. Maybe you tell yourself that when life slows down, when the kids are grown, when you retire, then you're going to be one of those people working for justice. And then there are those of us who are frankly burned out on serving. We tried it. We gave our hearts to it. And we have grown weary of serving. Maybe you had one of those experiences where you left a meeting early at the office and raced across town so that you could tutor a child only to show up and find out that the child wasn't there that day and no one bothered to tell you. Or you threw your efforts into raising money for an orphanage in Haiti only to find out that the orphanage was closing because of mismanagement. My friend Cheryl in North Florida worked with a group of people to resettle refugees in her community. And she partnered with one particular family, and she and her boys and her husband invited them to baseball games, and they had picnics for them, and invited more of the refugee families to get acquainted. And then she realized that the refugee family was kind of inching away emotionally, and she didn't want to intrude upon their customs or upon their religion, and so she found herself pulling back. She wasn't quite sure what to do because sometimes our hearts get bruised simply because we're trying to serve. This morning, we heard two scripture lessons. You might think of these as two separate conversations on the same topic, the topic of faithfulness. What does it really mean to be a deeply spiritual person? How is it that a good religious person behaves in daily life? Jesus tries to convince them in that first conversation that God is not a person 
who demands of us that we follow a rigid set of rules. But God is a holy energy inviting us to serve one another. And then in that other text, Isaiah tries to convince those who are in earshot of the prophet's words that following God is not about checking a box of obligation, saying, did that, done, but rather about compassionately serving those who are the least in our community. But surely, even before Zeke and Corey read, you knew that. I used to think that worship and service were two separate things. You could either be one of those persons who really enjoyed silent prayer and meditation, or you could be one of those persons who was always volunteering in the community and speaking out for justice. And then in 2002, I flew to London to visit the Sisters of St. Mary's Abbey, an Anglican group that dates back to the Middle Ages, that the nuns there were still wearing full habits, and they lived behind these tall stone walls where they worshiped eight times a day and grew their own vegetables. I will never forget that in that building, there was only one telephone and it was in a closet. And they only answered that telephone every day between two and four in the afternoon. And I knew that going over there and I thought to myself, well, how quaint, how sweet, and how deeply cut off from the reality of the real world they are. And then when I arrived, the nun who greeted me graciously welcomed me as an American visiting her country. And she said to me that the moment the planes hit the World Trade Center just six months prior, that she and the other sisters dropped what they were doing and they went into the sanctuary and they began to pray for the United States and they began to pray for world peace and they began to pray that all those who were harmed would be received by God's spirit. And I was shocked. And I realized that these sisters behind the stone walls were not removed from the world, but deeply connected to the pain of the world. And that Isaiah knew what he was talking about when he said that worship and service are really two threads of the same loom. For when we bow down to God, we are immediately led into the compassion of God, to the wonder of God, and to a desire for caring for all of God's people. Maybe you knew that already. When I was in high school, about 16 years old, I got to hear a man named Millard Fuller speak at a youth conference at TCU. It was one of the most inspiring moments of my life. Millard Fuller talked about the gigantic problem facing our country of substandard housing for millions of families. And he talked about his commitment to build homes for every single one of them, homes that they could own, that they could help build, homes that would be a safe place to raise a family. And he said that he was going to call this little startup not-for-profit that no one had yet heard of Habitat for Humanity. Millard Fuller's joy was absolutely contagious, and my friends and I in high school decided that we were going to be a part of whatever it is that he was going to do. And so we decided to have an all-night dance marathon for the whole region, and we would raise enough money at that dance marathon to build a house. 
And my friend Holly and I went up and down Barry Boulevard in Fort Worth, Texas, knocking on the doors of every business who would greet us, asking them what it is that they planned to donate for our dance marathon. We needed things like donuts, for example, and Bibles and other kinds of things for prizes. We were so excited you could not have stopped us with the Mack truck. This was my first taste of the joy of service. It was not an obligation. It was pure joy. But you've probably had an experience like that yourselves. William Willimon, the Methodist bishop in the South, tells the story of a congregation that had become filled with turmoil and conflict. You know, in the Methodist tradition, the bishop moves the pastors around periodically. And Bishop Willimon noted that each time he went to move a pastor from this congregation, the, con the pastor would report, thank goodness you're moving me. That is the most mean-spirited group of Christians I have ever served. And then something changed. The members of that congregation decided that they would set up a safe home for women and children fleeing situations of domestic violence. And so the members of the congregation began serving those who were hurting and desperate for hope, for love, for acceptance, and for a second chance in life. And this act of hospitality to strangers, it changed them. That congregation stopped bickering and complaining about one another. They stopped obsessing about their own differences and conflicts inside the church. Suddenly, it didn't seem to matter what color the carpet was in their sanctuary or who was right about that one issue of theology. And Bishop Williman noted that he would go back to that church and tell the pastor, it's time for me to place you somewhere else. And the pastor would say, oh, no, please don't take me out of this congregation. These are the kindest, gentlest, most loving and compassionate people I have ever served. But I guess you already know that when we serve, it changes not only each of us individually, but all of us collectively. Sometimes I think that whether or not I serve, well, it's my choice. It's an option. Like next Saturday, I could get up and go shopping, or I could serve someplace in the community. But the scripture paints a different picture. In the scripture, service is not an obligation. It's not an option. It's a delight. Isaiah says that when we work for justice and feed the hungry and bring the homeless into our own homes, then your light shall break forth like the dawn. At that moment, we will call on God, and God will come to us saying, Here I am. Repeatedly in Scripture, people say to God, Here I am. And in this text, it is God who says to them in the midst of their act of serving, here I am. Isaiah proclaims that we experience God's great delight, God's holy delight, rising up within our own lives when we serve. And that is the very moment when the light breaks forth like the dawn. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a family gathering in Alpena, Michigan, and we were gathered at the Big Boy Restaurant. Don't know if you've been there, but I highly recommend it if you get to northern Michigan. I was there at a long table with the entire family, and I was seated across 
the table from my brother-in-law, Art, who's an extreme introvert. Art was looking down, doodling on his placemat. And then he held up his placemat for me, and on it was a sketch of the area of Nigeria where he has spent the last decade trying to build safe homes for children orphaned by HIV and AIDS. He explained to me that this entire area, many, many miles, is an area of Nigeria where the internet and the cell phone do not reach. And then he told me a story about this one little dot on his hand-drawn map. He said that one day he was working in that village with some village leaders when some little boys came running towards him and said, we hear a baby crying. It sounds like it's coming from the latrine, but we've looked and we can't find the baby. He discovered that a mother had dropped her newborn down the latrine because she couldn't afford to raise her own child. Just the day before, the owner of that latrine had poured oil into the latrine, and when he was finished, he dropped the oil can into the latrine, and the baby had landed on top of the oil can and was still alive. Art gathered some men together, and they dug a hole adjacent to the latrine to try to reach the infant without collapsing the earth. It took them four hours, and finally they were able to tunnel over and reach the child and bring the girl out to safety. Then the police came, and they were about to arrest the mother, and Art knew the mother's story. He knew that she lived in a home where there was literally not a place for another human being to sleep, and that if another human being was added to that household, someone would have to sleep outside. Every inch was taken up. And he also knew that the mother had been raped multiple times. And so when the police moved in to handcuff her, Art intervened. No, he said, you will not take her. I will vouch for her. I will care for her, and I will see that she is able to care for her child. You will not take her. He risked his own life by speaking out. He found a safe place for the woman to live with her child. And when the time came, he helped the child get into a good school. And just recently, he had been back to the village and he went and found the child in that school. She's now in first grade. She's number one in her class. Art told me, when I said to the police, no, don't take her, I will vouch for her. I had no idea where those words were coming from. They didn't seem to be my words, but I heard myself speaking them. I looked across my scrambled eggs on the table at the big boy and I saw in the face of my brother-in-law light breaking forth like the dawn. God's great joy, God's great delight was radiating in his eyes. In humble service, we glimpse the living God. But I don't need to tell you that, do I? <laughs>